Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Fantastic. Some of us are probably still sore from this week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we, I am a part of a softball team. Half, if not more, of our church plays for that team, and I think everybody had a resounding ugh when they woke up the next morning after that first game, because we we're majority of us are over 27, and once you get there, it kind of starts to go downhill. Um, so, anyways, uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church. For those of you who don't know me, hello. Uh, for those of you who've wondered where I've been the last couple of weeks, I'm still here. Um, until God calls me out or calls me home, I'm still here. Um, but it has felt like the last couple of weeks I haven't been able to come into the Sunday morning gathering and worship with you guys, uh, whether it's because I've been out of town or with the kids serving up there uh, or even just serving in other places uh, that need a pulpit filled. Uh, The last couple of weeks have had me in and out of this place, and so I am grateful to be back here with you guys. Uh, It's always a joy and an honor to be able to open up God's Word and worship with you all, uh, as well as just sing and praise His great name. Um, And so I'm excited to be here this morning. Um, If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 16. Uh, We're going to be taking a look at the Philippian jailer, um, a guy that I feel like I resonate with, although my line of work wouldn't lead me to be a blue-collar type of worker. Uh, This is the type of man we're looking at today, is that hard-nosed, blue-collar worker, um, and in comparison to the two women that we've seen Uh, kind of in the middle of the pendulum in his lifestyle, and we'll talk about that for a little bit. Before we get into that, I do want to let you know we are going to be uh, ending our Acts 16 chapter today. We've been walking through that for a little while. Uh, The last, I think, four to five weeks, we've walked through Paul and Silas picking up Timothy in Lystra and Derby. Uh, if you remember uh, Waylon getting up in here and preaching the Macedonian call, uh, where Paul was trying to move to Asia, um, but was ultimately blocked by the Spirit uh, and then called down to Macedonia, uh, where he would preach the gospel to Lydia, as Alec preached a couple weeks ago, this businesswoman, the seller of purple goods from Thyatira. Um, And we saw her and how the gospel transformed her life, but she still lived the way in which God had called her to be, which was a uh, God-fearing businesswoman. Um, And then uh, a couple weeks ago, Dwayne talked about the slave girl that was saved from demon possession um, and called into the house of God and how the gospel frees us from slavery. And so I point these two women out because if we had a pendulum of lifestyles, Uh, these two would be on opposite spectrums. We've got one woman who is a wealthy, God-fearing businesswoman who is either leading a Bible study or at a Bible study by the time Paul comes to Philippi and preaches the good news to her group. Um, The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God worked within her so that she was intently listening to the Lord and then she was saved. Uh, Not only was she saved, she was so joyful in this salvation that she brought the men home to her house, and her family was also saved. And then the next story we see is Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in Philippi. This girl, who had been following him around for the last couple of days, ironically saying these men are the servants of the Most High, and I say that ironically because, one, she was telling the truth, but two, she was being antagonistic to the gospel and trying to deter them. Paul finally gets annoyed, as Luke would tell us, 
And he calls that demon out of her, and she is saved, freed from the bondage of not only slave to sin, but also the bondage to these masters, who we will see got very frustrated and very upset because their hope in gaining from her work was now gone. And so that's where we're going to be picking it up this morning, starting in verse 19. But before we jump in, looking at those two characters that I just described, I want to show you that them being on the opposite spectrums, we now will come to meet a man who's the third character in this Philippian church story that Luke gives us, who would, we would find right in the middle, where one, one woman seems to have her life together, and the other woman is a complete 180 degree from her lifestyle, not pursuing God, enslaved by a dem uh, demonic activity. Now we meet this man who's more in the middle. Probably, if I were to say, the most people would meet this guy in their life, right? We don't, all be, we don't often walk into a bookstore, we don't often walk into work and meet a Lydia or meet a slave girl where demon possession needs to be called out. Oftentimes we walk into people's lives and they are in the middle. They're a skeptic. They're one who just wants to get their job done, thinks that they're good because they're better than their neighbor down the road, loves their family, good, well enough, not doing anything wrong, and they just want to go home after work and just enjoy a game, maybe enjoy a beer, and just continue that day-to-day -day lifestyle, and they, don't, they think they don't need anything of the gospel. And that's who we are going to meet today, this Roman jailer, who's most likely an older man who has now worked his entire life for the country and the government and is retired and oversees this jail. These are the three people that we get to see in the story of the Philippian church. If we start to look to the New Testament and Paul's letters to these churches in areas that he'd gone on to, we see that one of his most joyous letters that he's written to a church is this one is the Philippian church. And this is made up, or at least the foundation is made up, of these three people. And what these three people show us this morning is the scope of Paul's ministry and what can happen if someone remains open and confident in sharing what the good news of Jesus Christ has done for them. As John Stott puts it, there are few people more diverse ethnically, socially, psychologically, and culturally than Lydia, the slave girl, and this Philippian jailer. And yet Paul engaged them all with a gospel intended for all. And these three people, and some others that we'll start to see as we look through this Philippian jailer's story, are the start of this church. These three people reflect a glimpse of what I hope as we look through this chapter and end Acts chapter 16 today, and then ultimately if you continue to read through the book of Philippians, my hope is that our church would reflect this diversity. This diversity in ethnicity, this diversity in generations, this diversity in sociological economic status, this diversity in culture. I hope that we would get a glimpse from Acts chapter 16 as a whole and long for what Revelation shows us where we will be and who we will be worshiping with in glory. Where John tells us that all tribes, tongues, and nations will be before the throne of God praising his name. And so I hope our church will get a glimpse of what that looks like here in Acts chapter 16 and be spurred to pursue that type of diversity. So before we start, uh, I want to ask this question. I just want you guys to think about it 
as we walk through this passage. How is your faith proclaimed at midnight? Now, I'm not talking about the physical midnight. Hopefully, you're like me, you're sleeping at that time, maybe in REM cycle, but you are resting. So I'm not talking about a sleeping midnight. What I'm talking about here is the dark night of the soul. What I'm asking is, what does your faith proclaim in those dark moments? Think about that as we walk through this passage, because that's what I'm going to keep coming back to this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into verse 19 and look at the Philippian jailer. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you as we have sung that there is salvation in your name, that you are a living hope. You're not a God that went to the cross and died, and you are stuck in a grave, but you are a God who resurrected, defeated sin and death on our behalf, so that in that, we can now be called sons and daughters of God. In that act, we now can receive the inheritance. In that act, we now get you the greatest good that our souls could ever have and long for. So Lord, may we see and know more of you this morning as we open up your word. And may we grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So starting in verse 19, I wanted to pick up so that we start to see kind of where the story turned a corner and why Paul and Silas would be thrown into jail. So we pick it up here in verse 19. It says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I'm going to stop right there for a moment before we get to this Philippian jailer who we've just been introduced to. And I want to tell you something and, and prepare you and Hopefully, you will take the start as believers in Christ. But the gospel does one of two things. The gospel, even, the gospel either hardens the heart of those who hear it, or the gospel softens the heart of those who hear it. There's no in-between. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 says, For we are the aroma of God to Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of of death to death, and to other, a fragrance of life to life. What Paul is saying in that passage is that there is an aroma that either leads someone to life or to death. They will either love what you have to say or they will hate what you have to say. And the owners of this slave girl, when they saw the hope of gain from this girl now lost, they began to accuse, they began to slander. They began to defame Paul and Silas to a point where now they were ready to beat them, probably even murder them, because of what they had lost. And the reason I bring this up is because as your pastor, it's important to remind you that the Christian life is not going to always keep you from suffering. In fact, as Jesus says, believers will walk into suffering, that we should take heart even in the midst of our suffering, because this is a momentary affliction in light of what is to come in glory. 
And I want to point that out to you because when people have their idols uprooted or when people are called out in their sin, as these slave masters are here, they don't often respond with rejoicing. Sin runs very deep in everyone's lives, not just non-believers, even in our own. And the good news of Jesus Christ comes and seeks to uproot those idols, seeks to show the true hope that we have in him. Listen to the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're familiar with two of his books, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together, those would be two that I'd recommend if you haven't already read them. And a book called Letters and Papers from Prison, which is what I'm going to read from today, is another one that's a very fascinating read to see the life of a man who was put into prison because he preached the gospel against a Nazi regime. In 1933, amongst the instability in Germany's economy and the country's greatest depression, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler was elected chancellor of Germany. Hitler's leadership was widely welcomed in the country, except for a minority, specifically by another man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But, if it, <clears throat> but as Hitler was elected, Bonhoeffer raised opposition to his leadership. Just two days after the election, Bonhoeffer was actually broadcasting on a radio and the distrust of Hitler and his leadership, and his radio broadcast was cut off midstream. Bonhoeffer was worried that the Nazi ideology would ultimately infiltrate the church in Germany, which led him to break away and create an underground church that preached the gospel truly and rightly. And after three years of opposing Nazi teaching and going and leading a German church in London, Bonhoeffer was denounced and claimed an enemy of the state, he then, has his, he then had his authorization to teach in churches and schools revoked, and one of his fellow companions were arrested that year. In 1939, worried that he would have to take an oath unto Hitler, Bonhoeffer fled to the United States where he lived less than two years before moving back because he felt guilty for not practicing what he was preaching. And on his return to Germany, Bonhoeffer was denied the right to speak or to write anything that could be published against Nazi Germany. He managed to join a German military intelligence, and it was here that the strongest opposition that was against Hitler was brought. This included several assassination attempts on Hitler's life. And through this German intelligence agency, Bonhoeffer made plans to help free German Jews to escape to, to Switzerland, and it was his involvement that ultimately led to his imprisonment. In 1943, he was imprisoned at Telegel uh, Military Prison until 1944, where he was ultimately moved to Flossenburg Concentration Camp, where he would be hung for treason just two weeks before the end of World War II. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the reason I bring his example up is because he saw and spoke out about an evil that was coming from the Nazi party and into a German church. But by doing so, he called out idols that men and women were holding on to in a leader. A leader who was oppressing and a murdering Jewish people. And because he was calling out these injustices, because he was approaching men and women's idols, he was ultimately opposed, imprisoned, and put to death. Paul and Silas, we see here, are thrown into prison for a the same foundational reason. You see, they called out and then they helped uproot an idol that the slave masters 
had been holding on to. And this girl's demonic power, they idolized the wealth that she was bringing in. And then they became violent when that was removed from them. You see, people don't like when their idols are revealed or removed. So the Christian life isn't always going to avoid suffering. In a world where it's becoming increasingly hostile to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to share that truth with you. Because I feel like I need to prepare you as your pastor to equip you into the world that you're going out into. We have to be aware that we're not always going to be welcomed with open arms. But think about your own life, right? I mean, we can think about others and think, oh, when I call their sin out, they're going to be frustrated. But think about your own life for a second. Who in here, if you want to raise your hand, go ahead, but who in here likes when the Holy Spirit reveals sin to them? Anyone? I don't like it, right? I used to say I have a love-hate relationship with the Holy Spirit because I hate when he calls out sin in my life, but I love it because I know it's making more into the image of Christ. But as your pastor, I need to help prepare you. I need to help equip you because sin runs deep. And we all hold on to idols very tightly. And even though we sing and believe that the gospel brings freedom, everyone is not always happy about that freedom, especially those who've had their idols removed from their hands. And this is why they have Paul and Silas unjustly beaten and thrown into jail, which is ultimately where we meet this Philippian jailer. Now we have to ask the question, who is this jailer? Why did Luke find it so important? Because if you think about Paul's ministry, he probably had more people around him in Philippi than just these three people, right? Just, he, more than just Lydia, more than the slave girl, more than just this Philippian jailer. But God was ultimately doing something in the life of Paul and Silas that would lead to this Philippian jailer and lead for the Holy Spirit to have Luke write about him. So if the Holy Spirit found it important to share this part of the story, we should find it important too. So this Philippian jailer, history would tell us that these jailers were often men who were highly decorated Roman guards, who at retirement received a gift to run jails. That seems like an odd gift to me. I mean, if I'm retiring, I'm good with scotch and bourbon, all right, or some cigars. Don't give me a prison. Don't, don't allow me to watch some jailers, or some, some prisoners being a jailer. But this is the gift he received. This was a man who was found faithful to the task that he'd been given. He was a man of discipline. He was a man who respected authority. He was a man who was obedient and thorough with all that he had been tasked to. We can see this in how he brought Paul and Silas to the inner prison and chained them in stocks. He took close care on the type of work that he did. Some would even say that he idolized his work. He understood the weight of running a prison. And he understood the shame that was to come if anyone would escape. We see this later on when the earthquake comes and the chains are broken, the stocks are open, and the prisoners have the ability to run out. The soldier gets so upset and finds himself in shame that he's willing to kill himself. So he understands the weight and the response, the responsibility of being a jailer. We also see that his words held weight in his family. 
We'll see later on that he gets saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and he takes that same truth back to his family and they believe. So there's a weight in which he carries even in his own family. And we can gather that this was a man who would have placed his hope in his ability to work and in his ability to do his own things, kind of like tying up his own bootstraps and saving himself. As a man, as Spurgeon would claim, that he was of such regularity and decision-making that he was not much saved from rebellion, but from self-righteousness. In our day and age, he would be described as someone who is a skeptic that I talked about before. But something miraculous happens to his life. He may not have seen it. He may not have felt the need of the gospel like Lydia or like the slave girl. But something miraculous happens. An earthquake comes, and he is saved. So let's read that story. We'll pick it up back in verse 25. It says this, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were fastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had all escaped. Going back to our example through Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we find that in 1945, he was given a court-martial and sentenced to death. Sentenced to death by hanging. Like many of his co-conspirators, he was hung by wire to prolong the death. The camp doctor who witnessed this execution had this to say about Dietrich. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God, and I was most deeply moved by the way his lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds, and in almost 50 years... As a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God, even in death. Just before his execution, he asked a fellow inmate to relate a message to the bishop, George Bell, which said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. For me, seeing how Paul and Silas respond after being thrown into prison unjustly answers the question, What does your faith reveal at midnight? Earlier I asked you this question and I wanted you to kind of meditate on that. Because for Bonhoeffer, it was that his life was submissive to the will of God even unto death. That was what was portrayed at midnight. For Paul and Silas, it revealed their steadfast hope and love for the Lord as they prayed and they sang hymns to God. I want to give you a picture of what these stocks would look like because if you're thinking like me, these stocks would be like when you go to Virginia or Williamsburg and they kind of have those stocks you can put your head through, take a picture of it. That's not what we're looking at here. The Roman stocks were actually much much worse, much worse form of torture. You'd be laid on your back at first, chained up like this and chained down in your ankles, and then you would be lifted up to where your legs would dangle and your back would be on the ground and then your feet would be beaten until they bruised and you were in pain. And there you would lay. 
just like that until they let you out. It was these circumstances that Paul and Silas would pray and sing. In the dark dungeons of the inner prison, they were praising God, even though they were publicly disgraced, beaten, vilified, and now thrown into these stocks. You find them worshiping in joy. You discover your theology at midnight. You discover your theology at midnight. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, then moments like this, you're most likely going to become bitter or angry or even very discouraged. If you don't believe in the God who numbers the hairs on your head, as we see in Matthew 10, then you may think that something like this that has happened to you is ultimately terrible and there is no hope. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you know that nothing can happen to you by accident. In that case, your reaction is likely to be quite different. This is why I asked you that question, to get you to think about where your faith may land or what you might be proclaiming at midnight. Because it is at the darkest nights of the soul that the difference between theory and reality are discovered. I used to think that my seminary studies, that my Bible degree, that my time in ministry would bring me depth and perspective. And those things have helped me grow. Don't get me wrong, I, I love studying, I love reading theology and doctrine. And those things help grow my knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ, and I, I praise him for that. But you know what really revealed my theology? Walking through cancer. What revealed my theology was being betrayed by my closest friends. What revealed my theology was finding out that there was abuse in my family that had been kept hidden for close to a decade. You discover your theology at midnight. And so if this was your life, if this is where you're at or you were placed, what would be your song? What would be the place that you run to? What would your theology say or what would your response say about the theology you believe? Because what do you do when there's abuse in the family, when there's financial burdens, when your body is failing you, when there's a miscarriage, when there's failed relationships? Where do you run to? What is your song? Are you like the apostles in John 6 where Jesus is preaching and proclaiming, in order to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and hundreds of disciples in the New Testament walk away from him because they think he's crazy? And the 12 that are there, he questions, are you going to leave also? And Peter stands up and says, Lord, where would we go? For you hold the words of eternal life. Is that your response in the midst of the dark nights of the soul? Because my hope is your pastors to prepare you for these dark nights. Because they will come. And I want you to have joy. And I want you to have hope. And not a happiness that is fleeting but a joy in the midst of the tears you can sing to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is my prayer for you.
is that you would have a deep abiding joy that no matter the circumstances, you trust in the sovereignty of God and that he would sustain you because he is good. My encouragement is that you would not despise the dark days, but that you would say like Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages because you know that being in the middle of God's will, trusting his sovereignty is going to be the best thing for your life, even if it involves being in pain. Because there's a purpose in the suffering. And we see this here in Paul and Silas's example of them worshiping. We see that there is a purpose that God had for them being in jail. So let's go back to verse 28 and see what God had for them. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Reading this passage, one would think, why would Paul and Silas still be in the prison by the time the guard got there? If it were me, I would have bounced. I would have ran. I might have even watched the jailer take his own life because of how he treated me. They had every right to leave. They were punished unjustly. They were now free from the chains and the gates that had bound them. We even saw in Acts 12, Peter walked out of jail like this similar situation, going and preaching the gospel. Just kind of walked out like a boss and said, I'm, I don't have to worry about these chains started preaching again. So why here would Paul and Silas stay? Because they understood that God's greater purpose for them was to reach this Philippian jailer. As J.D. Greer puts it for this passage, if part of God's plan to reach Philippi was to put Paul in a prison so he could suffer well before this jailer and then tell him the reason that he still had joy in the midst of suffering, That was a price Paul was willing to pay. Paul understood that God appointed his suffering in order to teach and reach the jailer with the good news of the gospel. You see, the end of the chapter shows us that Paul and Silas were eventually let go the next day. And if they were released that day, a day after they were beaten, a day after they were arrested and imprisoned, why would God send the earthquake that midnight? We see that the earthquake had absolutely nothing to do with the freeing of Paul and Silas from prison, but it had everything to do with the salvation of this certain prison guard and his household. God had appointed Paul and Silas to go into this prison in order to reach this guard with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I know I'm asking a lot of questions this morning, and it really is to spur your thought process up when you read a passage like this. So I'm sorry, but not really sorry, I have another question. (laughs) But what if your suffering isn't just for you? 
but for someone else? What if there's a greater purpose in your suffering? What if your suffering, instead of you asking whose life, instead of asking why, God, you ask whose life are you trying to put me in? Whose life are you trying to use me in? As 2 Corinthians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. God grants us mercy so that we can be merciful to others. God stands wholeheartedly with us in our suffering so that we can stand wholeheartedly with others who are also suffering. What if we stopped asking, why God me? And asked, who are you placing me in the lives of someone who is suffering? What if even in our advice we stopped giving reasons like you're going to get through this moment or this is just a season and you'll get past it as if life isn't full of a bunch of seasons? What if we started giving advice in those hard times that God is sustaining you? Trust in him. That God has given you all that you need in this moment. Trust in him. That God is using you. Abide in him in order for you to go and help someone else. What if our advice looked different? And I bring this up because as the 1984 song that Michael Jackson is part of, I always feel like somebody's watching me. It's true. People are watching us. We see in this passage, the prisoners are listening and seeing and hearing Paul and Silas worship as they are being chained and beaten. We see the jailer seeing the grace and joy that Paul and Silas had, the humility and mercy that they showed to him instead of fleeing, but to stay in the prison in order that he wouldn't lose his life. Paul even uses this experience in jail in the first chapter of the book of Philippians when he says, from day one you saw me in prison and you saw the joy that I had. Maintain that joy. What would it look like in your life in the midst of pain, trial, turmoil, suffering? You're able to sing and have joy, not for your own life, but for the life of someone else. Pain and unfortunate circumstances are your chances to put your hope and joy in God on display. As John Piper puts it, the universe exists so that we may live in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is more precious than life. Because what do we see in Paul and Silas's joy? What is brought about? We see salvation. The jailer comes and probably mind boggled that these prisoners would not flee. And in that moment, he asks, what must I do to be saved? This is the most important question that we find in this passage. What must I do to be saved? And what is Paul's response? Believe in Jesus, and you and your whole household will be saved. And the passage goes on to say that Paul and Silas taught them the word of the Lord. So Paul's response is salvation isn't something that you do, but it's something that has been done for you in Christ. 
Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, humbled himself by putting flesh, putting on flesh and lived a life that we could never live, died the death we so rightly deserved and rose from the grave, sealing our election as sons and daughters of God. The Bible is very clear that our condition before God is one of a fractured, fallen state because of sin. In Romans 3, it tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means that none of us deserve God's love, but, this is a great three-letter word that we can hang our hats on, but God shows his love for us that while we were, his, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that even though we don't deserve God's love, he extends it to us anyway, primarily through laying down the life that we could never live. And this is good news for us. This is the good news that Paul preached to this jailer, that because of our sin, we truly deserve God's wrath. We truly deserve death and judgment. Romans 5 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ we get grace. In Christ we get forgiveness of sins. In Christ we get love, we get righteousness, and not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness imputed to us on our behalf. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news that Paul proclaimed. This is the good news that we trust in, that Jesus died so that we might live. And this is the clearest reality of God's love on display for enemies against him. This everlasting covenant that will never be broken because it was God who has fulfilled all of the obligations to keep it. And he has promised that those who are in Christ will never be let go. As the hymn says, no power of hell, no scheme of man shall ever pluck me from his hand. This is the good news. And I don't know the state of everyone in here. I'd like to think I do. But the reason I preach that gospel to you, the reason we preach this same gospel every single week is because we want you to hear that. And if you have not placed your hope in him, my prayer is that you would not delay. You would come and speak to me. Come and speak to Dwayne about what it looks like to know this Jesus. And as we close this morning, I want to use the example of these three characters we see in the book of Acts to show how God saves people in different areas of life. From Lydia, who was this fashionista when seeking God, to this slave girl who wasn't, wasn't even looking for the Lord, to this Philippian jailer who would have been a skeptic. God used Paul in different areas to come and preach the same gospel so that they would be saved. These are the original characters of the start of the Philippian church, the foundation in which this church began. And as we come to know this church in Philippi, as we read the book of Philippians, there are five distinguishing features that we start to see that stem from, one, Paul's ministry to them in Philippi, and two, the faith that they believed the first distinguishing feature we find is that they had a steadfast faith and firm adherence to the gospel even in the midst of persecution. We find that they had a joyful confidence that exalted Christ. 
We find that they had tender sympathy with Paul in his labors and his afflictions. We find that they were a generous people that contributed to Paul's needs. And we find them laborious, working together for the advancement of the gospel. From these three leaders, from their families, we have one of the most joyful and generous churches in all of the New Testament. And one I pray that our church would exemplify as we continue to share life and the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Indianapolis. Because it is this gospel that has the power to save. It is this gospel that can change the skeptic, the hardest of hearts, those who have been lost and ruined by the fall. It is this gospel that breaks down the self-righteous, the rebellious, the oppressed, the weary, the brokenhearted, those who think that they can do it on their own, those who think that they have no hope. The gospel is for them and is the power unto salvation to give them joy and hope. It's what saved Lydia. It's what saved this slave girl. It's what saved the jailer. And it's the only hope that we can bring to those around us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our jobs, at our gyms, at our grocery stores, wherever God has placed us, this is the only hope and joy we can give them. And it's the only joy and hope that we celebrate every Sunday. As we close out with communion, if the band will come up, we can begin to close out this service. But each week in communion, we remember and we celebrate in joy and in hope what God has done for us in Christ. His body broken, his blood poured out for us so that we who have placed our trust in him are now seen as righteous. We are now seen as delighted in. We are rejoiced over. We have received an inheritance as sons and daughters of God. And this is what we celebrate in communion each week. So I'm going to give you guys a moment to just reflect on what we learned today. I'm going to give you guys a moment that if there is sin that needs to be repented of before you go and take communion, repent. Repent and confess your sins before the Lord, knowing that he has done all that you need to be righteous in his sight. If there are relationships that need to be restored, refrain from communion this morning and go and restore those relationships. And if you need some time to just reflect on the truth of God this morning, do so. Take that time and let us celebrate. Let us celebrate what God has done for us in Christ, making us a new creation, giving us hope, giving us joy, giving us a foundation in which we can praise him no matter the circumstance. So let's take some time to pray and then we'll celebrate in communion. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at